Let's go ahead and pray before we start. Let's do that. Um, dear Jesus, thank you for what we're, um, what we get to do, uh, and when we have all kinds of distractions around us and a lot of obstacles in the way, like construction outside or other plans or um, just things that go wrong that try to keep us from coming here to be in your presence, Lord, we pray uh, for the strength to get through those. We thank you that we get to go through those and that you, you want so desperately to spend time with us. Um, just pray for, um, pray for peace and anointing on our gathering the rest of the day. Uh, in Jesus' name, amen. Um, so we are continuing on our series in Joseph. we skipping around a little bit chronologically, thankfully, because Nick let me do that because of some scheduling things. Um, so when we talk about Joseph and we talk about the story of this book, this is a story of stepping into God's promise is why we're calling the series Pursuing the Promise. This is a story of a man who studied under Moses, who was a prophet. That's um, like a pretty awesome apprenticeship, kind of, you know, it's a really good opportunity. And it also tells the story of the people of Israel that God delivered out of slavery in Egypt. He provided for them as they wandered in the desert. And he promised them this land. We call it very creatively the promised land. Because what else are you going to call it? Let's just call it what it is. This was supposed to be what they thought was the end of their wandering and their suffering. And this was meant to be, to them, the land that was flowing with milk and honey. This was supposed to be paradise. And how many times, I think, do we think of God's promises like that? That once I get married, then life will be perfect. Or once we buy that house, then God's promise will be fulfilled. Once I get this job or that promotion or that opportunity, then I've received the promise. I think that what we think the promise looks like and what it actually looks like can be pretty different. Not to say that you can't have a clear and discerning picture of what God has promised you, but I would bet that this version of the promise is not exactly picture perfect to what God has in store. Uh, the internet is full of very uh, real and amazing examples of expectation versus reality like these. and. You know, like that's what we think God's promise is going to look like, and then that's, that's what you get, that's what you've made of it, and it's kind of sad. Um, but I don't think that creation, any part of creation, whether that's God's promises or your life or anything in it, was ever designed to peak at a certain point. Nothing in life is ever the best at one moment, and then it descends again. Things just change. Um, and I don't think that God ever designs any, any of his promises or anything in creation to get better and then get worse. I don't think that that's really how, how that works. For the Israelites, the expectation was finally rest and stability in this land. This, this promised land was supposed to be exactly that. It was supposed to be paradise. And instead, coming up on Canaan, and especially here at the first city in Jericho, they find instead that the promised land means war. What was supposed to be sweet and easy instead means hard work, violence, and battle. God says, I'm going to give you this land. This is the land that I promised you, right over there. It's right there within your reach. You can do this, but you have to take hold of it. So let's pull back, get a sense of the um, where we are chronologically. Because um, I know, like I said, we've skipped around a little bit in this series. The Israelites have just crossed the Jordan River. Um, this is a miracle on par with Mars Moses parting the, the Red Sea. Um, they needed to cross the Jordan to get to this land, and God stopped the flow of the river so they could walk, pass through. God did this. 
They set the stones in memorial for what God's done for them, and now they are planning the siege of Jericho. They've sent out spies to case the joint to see what they're up against. They're planning for war. They're expecting battle. And then my favorite thing happens. It's going to happen that we're going to talk about today. Not the marching or the shouting, not the victory, but this encounter. We're looking here in Joshua chapter 5, verses 13 through 15. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, no, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet for the place where you're standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Joshua's prepared for a fight. He assumes this guy is too. I mean, he's like really close to a fortified city with an army that's getting ready for battle and he's got a sword in his hand. So I'd say that's a fair assumption. We can't really knock Joseph too much for that. But he, he does have a little bit of vanity in here. He says, are you, are you for me or are you for my enemies? Because he doesn't even consider that there would be another option. And I love that this angel says, no. Sometimes I get this when I'm asking God for something. God, should I do this or should I do this? No. Do I go left or do I go right? No. He means here to shift the perspective of this promise that Joshua has in his mind and to shift Joshua's perspective on whose battle this is going to be. Joshua's asking, am I going to win this battle or am I going to lose this battle? No. He was the, the, the commander of the Lord's army. He was not there to fight for, with, or against Israel. Rather, he was there to ensure that Israel fought for the Lord. You kind of see where the distinction here where we're going with this? God didn't show up at Jericho to fight for Israel. Israel showed up where God put them at Jericho so that they could win this battle that God had planned. And Joshua's response was worship, and I love that. This could have been his chance to get right to work. We have, we have a tendency to do that. We hear the promise or the mission or that we know what we have to do. We have the to-do list of everything that needs to get done, and we want to get straight to it. Joshua had a battle to fight, and now he had the resources in this commander and the blessing to win the battle. He's been set straight, and now he's got everything that he needs from the commander, the knowledge, the, the wisdom. But instead of immediately strategizing and planning, he worships. And only after he has stopped to praise God did he ask the commander, okay, cool, what's next? What do we do? And again, instead of immediately going to work, he points Joshua to reverence. Take off your sandals for the place where you're standing is holy. The general promise that God makes to us all in life is redemption, mercy, and relationship with the creator of the universe. That's what God promises to all of us. God also makes promises to each person individually, varying in scope and in time. Um, that's, that's kind of between you and God, whatever that looks like. This promise is for you, but it is from God, and this battle before you that you need to fight in order to take hold of it is God's to fight, not your own. This moment before you is sacred. This time and space where your list of things to do to get it done and to take care of ever before you, this is an important time to make room for worship. 
in the middle of your mission, in the place that you find yourself at any time is special. You're in the midst of Jesus serving the Father, and this is a special place to be. And Joshua did so. One of the most important things you can do in worship and in service to God is obey. This is why a couple weeks ago, I guess last month, we wanted to make time to do a whole Sunday devoted just to worship. Um, we had a lot of other things to tackle, a lot of other things in our mind as a church. Um, and even for the individual people on the team, that was a big sacrifice of time to prepare for that. We had a lot of other, you know, honestly better things to do with our time. It was not convenient. We could have been a lot more productive with all that time, but we wanted to obey what we felt was important in worshiping together as a church. And I've been seeing a little bit more clearly recently that part of my calling and part of what it looks like for me to take hold of God's promise is to bring kingdom work to work. Um, I truly wish this was not my duty. I wish that the promise was more like full-time worship ministry or making music full-time, but it's not, at least not right now. I really don't like my job. I think I've talked to at least everybody here about it. My job is stressful. Everything is urgent all the time. Everything's high, uh, everything's high touch. Everybody's really delicate, and they all think they're super important. Everything is time sensitive. Everybody's thing has to come first. Um, everybody from my coworkers to my clients are usually always miserable and sometimes very mean. Work gets overwhelming. I get stressed out, but I'm there to do God's work at work, which means I'm there to be kind and gentle, to be Jesus for people who don't know Jesus. And that's really hard. That requires me to do all of the things that I'm not good at, like be kind and gentle and patient. This is a battle for me. But it's really important to remember in those moments that this place that I'm in, in this stressful moment, in the chaotic day, this ball of anxiety that I've become, this is all holy because I'm there at work with Jesus doing God's work. I'm fighting God's battle, not my own. God is doing so much within me so that he can use me to do so much more in my office. And the same thing applies to so many other battles that we face that are a part of God's promises, parenting, relationships, industry. These are all holy missions, and there are constant holy moments in them, in these battles that we face when kids are being difficult. Obviously, that's part of the promise, this family, God that God's given you. It's part of the promise to raise these children, and sometimes it's hard, and that's a battle to fight, but in that battle when it's hard is a very holy moment. Not the location, not the city, not the season, but the moment I'm in at the foot of the mountain, the place that God has strategically put me in the middle of my battle is sacred. Revere it as holy. Uh, Nick gave me a book about Joshua as we were, as I was kind of reading and prepping and everything, just so we'd have some more information. There are a couple of lines in it that I really liked, even though I'd never heard of this guy who wrote the book, but there are a couple of really good lines. And this one fit really well. Sometimes we need to see that Yahweh is not so much partisan as sovereign, that it is more important to recognize God's position than to know God's plan. So back to Jericho. God tells them to march. He doesn't tell them to fight or to breach the city, or to rain down fire, he says, to march in silence, which is pretty counterintuitive for battle. <laughs> it's not, that's not the way that I would do it. Um, but they do. They, they do that, and they march around the city for six days. 
And then on day seven, seven priests blow seven horns. They march seven times around the city. And then number seven in the Bible is generally thought to signify completeness and achievement. Um, I personally don't know too much about it, but I know that when the Bible repeats something, then that something is significant. I think that um, from what I can gather, the number seven also typically is used in a context where God's holiness meets our humanness. We have seven days of the week. Jesus told us to forgive seven times, 77 times. So I'm not really the person to dive deeper here. I don't know a whole lot about it. I find it very interesting. But I don't really know why God said seven times. But he did. Um, The important part about this is that they did exactly what God told them to, even though it didn't make sense. They didn't try to win this battle their way. Moving to Joshua 6, verses 15 through 16, and then skipping down to verse 20. On the seventh day, they rose early at the dawn of day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, shout, for the Lord has given you the city. So the people shouted, and the trumpets were blown. And as soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpets, the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. So let's let's be realistic about this. I don't know, not being a scientist or an engineer myself, I don't know that the motion of people walking around a city or shouting or trumpets would have actually knocked down walls, especially in a fortified city. So I'm going to go ahead and say that God made this happen. In fact, even more awesome, the walls fell outward from inside the city. The archaeologists have actually proved that the walls of Jericho really did fall. Obviously, we believe that, and now science is catching up. Good job. But they also have proven that they fell from inside out. Only when Israel shifted their perspective to view this as God's victory, worshipped in reverence, and walked, quite literally walked in obedience, did they take hold of this promised victory. Following instructions with perseverance, even when it seemed like nonsense, continually pressing forward, even when they were walking in circles. I'm sure they felt like they were accomplishing nothing. They were going nowhere, but they were obedient. Obedience is an act of worship. And worship is obedience in the spirit. So worship is not just a song or a movement with your body. Worship is a posture. Worship is surrender. Worship is an attitude. It's what's what's in your heart. It's it's the, the intention on your heart. It's an offering of your spirit. Worship is sometimes the sacrifice of time spent praising Jesus when it may be more practical to be productive. When it feels like you need to be in action, fighting your battle, but instead you stop and you worship, your praise becomes the way that you win the battle. Another one from this guy I've never heard of from that book. Uh, The passage stresses how central God's promise is and how passive God's people are. In this case, God's people will not contribute to the overthrow. Sometimes it seems God insists on bypassing people's activity in order to enhance his own glory. We're going to call the worship team back up. We put God's glory on display front and center when we posture ourselves in humble worship saying, I can't do this without you. Let your praise come before your victory. 
Praise is not just a response to God's work, nor is it a formula to achieve the things that we want. Praise is a weapon, but it's not a weapon to be used against God to get the things that you want or to make the promise look more like what you want it to look like. Praise is a weapon from God to be used to take hold of his promise, the one that he has given you. Worship is the reaction to God's presence, his desire for relationship with you. Worship is the means for intimacy. Worship is the shift in perspective that it is not your battle to fight, but God's. I think I found in the, in the Old Testament a lot that people see it tend to like praise when it doesn't seem to be really the appropriate thing to do in that situation. Um, one of my favorite ones, because this is one of my favorite characters in the Old Testament, is Miriam. She is the sister of Moses and Aaron. So between the three of them, they are kind of the leadership team that takes Israel out of Egypt and through the desert up to this point where we've been. Um, she's really smart. She's the one who helped put baby Moses in a basket and then found him and was like, Pharaoh's daughter, here's a baby. Um, really, really cool woman. And she's always depicted with a tambourine. And that's because after the Israelites are fleeing and Pharaoh came chasing after them and Moses parts the Red Sea where they walk through on dry land. Pharaoh's army is still in, in coming after them and they run into the sea and God closes the sea back up and they all drown. Um, in that moment, Miriam gathers all the women together and they just start praising. Like they, they barely just made it and they're going to stop to worship. They've got like dead bodies floating up on shore, but they're stopping to praise God. Like this doesn't seem like the moment to do that, but they do it anyway. And her legacy, we only hear, I think there's like 26 verses about her in the whole Bible. Her whole legacy, the image there is the tambourine because she worshiped when she really, they, they could have been running. They could have been securing safety. They could have been looking for food. They could have been doing a lot of other things to secure their own safety, but instead she stopped and she led everyone in worship. So you may have noticed that we did things a little differently this morning. Maybe not. I don't know. There's not a ton of us and people, people come, didn't, not everybody here for the call to worship, but we, we pushed everything up today um, so that we can make more room and more time in, res in the response portion for some more worship because that's what we're talking about today. We're going to pause before the rest of the day, before we all head over to the Bells for our town hall, before we all get to our list of things to do for the rest of the day, for the week. We're going to pause to revere this moment as holy before our battle. That we together would raise our voices in worship and give this battle to God. Because God's promise for this church is his kingdom. So let's let him fight this battle as we lift up our we lift up our praise. Let's shift our perspective on what the promise looks like and how we can take hold of it. Let's offer up this sacred moment to God in our own personal battles, whatever it is that you're fighting or facing. We'll have some people back in back if you want to pray, but we're just going to worship together. I, I want to encourage you to let the Spirit minister to you in this moment as we praise. We're to metaphorically take off our sandals. Revere this place as holy. In this small group of people where we're in, we're surrounded by, you know, everything's turned upside down. But we're going to stop and praise because we have a lot to praise God for. 
It's hard where we are as a church. It's hard where we are as individuals. It's hard sometimes in this city. This is a tough place to be. But God has taken us. He's provided for us. We're going to praise. We're going to worship this morning. We're not going to fight these battles ourselves or our way because we can't do that. If the Israelites came and ignored what God asked them to do and tried to siege the city their way, they would have all died. They wouldn't have won the victory. They would have lost their lives. They would have lost the legacy. The history of humanity, the history of our faith would look so different. And who's to say that's not going to be the same for us in this city? If we continually try to fight our battles our own way, what victories are we losing out on? Because we're not letting God fight the battle for us. So we're going to praise. We're going to use that as our weapon this morning, not to win the battle, but to just cry out to God, surrender in, in, in worship and in praise. This place is holy. So let's get started. Let's do that. I'm actually really excited because it's not... Um, not often people actually entertain things that I want to do when I say, well, let's just do more songs because most of the time it's like we don't have time for that. So we wanted to make time to do that today. Let's pray. Jesus, I know that the message is simple and that the opportunity to come and worship is just such a special time and a place. We revere that moment as holy and we thank you for your presence in that, that you want to use us in these ways that don't make sense to us. That this victory is yours and the fact that you let us participate in that is incredible. We lift up our voices to you this morning in praise and in worship because we know that that's an important part that we play in what's happening around us and in these battles that we face. We lift up your name, Lord, because we, we cling to it. Worship is the only thing that we can do to give ourselves up in service to you. It's from this posture of worship that we can then be sent out. Continuing on in this mission, Lord, we give this battle to you. In Jesus' name, 